0: Ohio Governor Mike DeWine might actually get confronted with the death penalty in a way that he has thus far avoided as governor. It's the subject we're talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And Lisa, you're up on Capital Punishment. Alabama did it. Is Ohio next? Will Mike DeWine be faced with execution orders if the state changes its method of execution?
1: Yeah, this story actually made national news this morning. So there's Republican-sponsored legislation to use nitrogen gas for executions. After Alabama used it last week, they would use this as a backup if lethal injection drugs continue to be unavailable, as we've reported, you know, before. Manufacturers of these drugs, um, you know, don't want them used in in executions on moral and, and legal grounds. But uh, all this legislation would also um, Uh, give manufacturers of these drugs legal immunity. Um, Mississippi and Oklahoma have authorized the use of nitrogen gas. Other states are considering it. Uh, A co-sponsor of this proposed legislation, Representative Josh Williams, the Republican from Toledo, he says that the federal court ruled that this is not cruel and unusual punishment as set out by the Constitution in the Alabama execution of Kenneth Eugene Smith last week. He says, since since other states have litigated this, he says, we we can move forward with these alternative means. And as we've reported in at length, DeWine has halted executions. There hasn't been one in Ohio since 2018. Drug sales from the companies ended on moral legal grounds. Uh, they warned that they won't sell any drugs in Ohio of any kind if they're used in lethal injections. So Ohio Prosecuting Attorneys Association, they're a vocal supporter of using nitrogen gas to resume Ohio executions. There are 118 men and women on Death row right now in Ohio, he says that they want a path to justice for a crime victim, and also Attorney General Dave Yost favors it.
0: Yeah, nobody having a press conference today. There are a couple of things that I think are worth talking about with this, and the first I think is Mike DeWine. Mike DeWine has lived by his principles of protecting life. That's why he is so anti-abortion, and why he's never said I'm opposed to the death penalty. Everything he's ever done is to block the death penalty. And when you ask him about it, he quickly says, no one has been executed since I've been governor. He's had an out because up till now, he's able to say, well, we don't have a legal method of execution. We can't get the drugs. And so it's not really uh, an issue. If they pass this, and they might not, I guess, because there's enough opposition to the death penalty in the legislature where it might not pass. There is some talk about abolishing it. But if they pass it and it lands on his desk, I don't think he would sign it. And then if it becomes the law, he still has sole authority to sign those death warrants that you can't execute somebody without the governor signing it. And it'll be very interesting to see if he sticks to his guns and does not sign the, uh, the death warrants. Right.
1: Correct. You know, so yeah, this kind of puts him in a corner just a little bit, and we'll see how he really feels about the death penalty, I think. There are critics of nitrogen gas. Basically, they pump this gas into you through a mask, and it replaces the oxygen in your body more or less but some say it's inhumane it's experimental Smith the man who was executed last week in Alabama appeared conscious for several minutes he shook and he fought his restraints but some said that he may have been holding his breath to keep the gas from going in so uh yeah it's it's going to be an interesting thing yeah,
0: I mean, I, I should say at the front end, I, I, I'm not a big fan. I'm against the death penalty because it's irreversible. And the courts have made a lot of mistakes over the years. And if you execute somebody and then find out later, oops, he shouldn't have been convicted. It's too late to fix it. And it's very expensive. On the other hand, I should channel Ted Dyden. The guy who was executed last week committed a, a cruel and atrocious crime for money. He bludgeoned and killed a woman. It was, it was horrible when you read about it the the whole idea of it being cruel and inhuman though is i think the the belief has evolved over time that executions should have no discomfort and that's mm. not really what cruel and inhuman is i mean firing squads had a great deal of discomfort and And most of the methods used over time caused discomfort. But that doesn't mean that they're cruel and inhumane, according to what the Constitution says. The descriptions of his death did not sound like it was horrible, agonizing pain. And anybody that's put a pet to sleep knows what happens Mm -hmm. as they they fall asleep and, and die. So it's a fascinating moment because up till now, the legislature in Ohio has been talking about abolishing the death penalty because it's so expensive and it's and it's such a problematic thing. So it's odd that you've got these legislators saying, Let's let's go. Let's get let it let's get it going again.
1: And Attorney General Yost says that people on death row are more likely to die of old age than execution. Well, and if you sentence them to life in
0: prison, that's what would happen anyway, and it would cost the state a lot less. And if you make a mistake, you can reverse it, which you cannot do with executions. You are listening to Today in Ohio. What's the good news for Ohioans who can't get their driver licenses because of unpaid debts to insurance companies? Layla? This is a great development. It's sad that the state has been a collection agency for insurance companies.
2: Right. This, this comes from an appellate court ruling out of Columbus in the case of a guy named Keith Stone, who was an uninsured driver involved in a crash in 2005. At that time, he was held liable for $28,000 that he owed to Nationwide, which I presume was the insurer of the, the other party involved in the crash. Well, he never paid that debt. So the Ohio BMV followed a state law that said that the Bureau should suspend the license of anyone who has a judgment like that against them. But then years passed, and Nationwide did nothing to collect on that debt. Eventually, the debt went legally dormant, and Nationwide couldn't collect on on it anymore, even if they wanted to. By 2022, both Stone and the BMV agreed that the debt had grown dormant and unrevivable, which meant that Stone no longer had a duty to repay it at all. So he sought to have his license reinstated, but then the Bureau refused to do that, at first, a Franklin County Common Pleas judge sided with the Bureau that that either Stone has to pay the debt or get Nationwide's consent to vacate the suspension on his license. But the appellate court disagreed with that and said, that's ludicrous to say that Stone should pay on a debt that he no longer has any legal responsibility for. So they ordered his license to be reinstated. And the implications for this ruling could be pretty big if considering you know, that I'm, I assume there are a considerable number of people in the same situation that Stone found himself in with dormant debts dogging their records.
0: This must have been set up because the insurance lobby was giving campaign money to legislators. I mean, there is no excuse for a state acting as a collection agency for private companies. Any other private company you owe money to, they have to go through the normal collection process. And to deprive you of your driver's license because the insurance company says you owe them money. That's just not right. This is not about uninsured motorists. You know, he if he wants to drive, he has to have insurance through some other company. I guess this one wouldn't do it. But what is the state thinking in making that a condition? We have so screwed up the driver's license process. And it's we've done many stories about this, that it creates this cycle of despair for people because they have to get to work. They drive without a license. They get... Arrested, they get taken to jail, they get fined, their you know, they, custody issues with their kids, then it's a mess. And there's been a lot of effort to reform it to say, look, the only reason you should be deprived of having a license is if you're a reckless driver. If you r- rack up so many tickets that you prove you are a hazard on the roadway, you shouldn't be allowed to drive. But all the debt stuff should have nothing to do with it.
2: Right, right. I wonder how many people this actually applies to in the state. I mean, granted, these are dormant debts, so there are probably people with active debts who would not, who this particular ruling would not impact. But-
0: I cannot believe how in the pocket of private business Ohio lawmakers long have been. It seems like any business that comes in with cash just buys these guys off. We've seen it with the utilities. We've seen it. It's just no end. And I didn't know about this, but how the insurance companies got this into law that you can't get a driver's license if you owe an insurance company money. That's just outrageous. I wonder if any other state has that or if we are the easiest-to-buy legislature in the history of the country.
2: All great follow-up stories, Chris. Yeah,
0: Yeah, indeed. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Former U.S. Senator Rob Portman, a Republican, is donating money from his old campaign fund to some Democrats. Laura, interesting development. Why?
3: Because he worked with Senator Kristen Cinema of Arizona, and he gave her $4,000 on October 23rd. That was two weeks after Republican Carrie Lake entered the U.S. Senate race in Arizona. She has former President Trump's backing. She's a former TV anchor who lost her campaign for Arizona and sorry, governor campaign in, in 2022 because, well- I don't know if it's because, but she was echoing Trump's false election conspiracies. And we know that Rob Portman, well, definitely a Republican, a conservative, is not a fringe Republican, and for the most part, stood up for what he believed and wasn't kowtowing to the president. He, he didn't give out a lot of money while he was winding down his campaign fund, but he does have about $2.9 million that he can spend since he retired.
0: There are so many old-style Republicans in this country that just do not want to go back to the era of Donald Trump. It's fascinating to watch. I mean, Ted Diadon keeps writing columns begging Republicans to vote for Nikki Haley because mm-hmm. he knows that Trump is a monstrous human being, a terrible leader, and likely will lose because the center of America isn't really with him. And this, Rob Portman, you're right, man. He was all in as a Republican but he, you know, he's he wants the legacy of this country to endure and not elect the would-be dictator. So I, it's not really a surprise to me that he would support a colleague he worked with who's a Democrat, especially when they're running against a Trump crazy and Carrie Lake. She's the one that is. Does she, she the one that switched districts out there? No, she's not. She's just running um, in this race.
3: Hey, I like, should good point for- out that cinema is she's now a political independent. She's been that since late 2022. But when she worked with Portman, she was a Democrat and they collaborated on that trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure law. So obviously he, you know, Portman backs her policies. So he did give a lot of money. Well, not a lot. He gave some Republican causes. He gave it to Republican Ohio Supreme Court Justice Joe Dieters, who's running for reelection. But we'll have to see if he backs anyone else it'll be interesting
0: yeah is he giving money to bernie moreno the trump no puppet, or no to, he like, hasn't
3: endorsed in that race either yeah, which is I interesting mean,
0: come on that's not rob portman was not in the style of no. bernie moreno and frank larose he was much more in the style of a matt dolan uh but you know hey bernie moreno he was endorsed by donald trump did you know that
3: well, would it, <laughs> wouldn't it be interesting i mean this is just a big what if but if he so respected sherrod brown after all there's working years that he (laughs) gave him money.
0: I I, My bet is he would endorse Dolan because he and Dolan are very much the same kind of old style Ohio Republican, but maybe he won't figure into that race at all. It's got to break his heart to see the fringe rising. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, we've hit the one year anniversary of the pig trained amendment in East Palestine. And to commemorate it, we're getting all sorts of press releases from businesses that say, look at me, look at me. What is Norfolk Southern saying?
1: Well, the Federal Railroad Administration announced this week that Norfolk Southern Railroad is joining a one-year pilot program for rail safety. It allows employees to remain confidential when reporting unsafe events and conditions without discipline. Uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says he wants all Class 1 railroads to join this program, which is called Confidential Close Call Reporting System, or C3RS. But Norfolk Southern is the only one to join so far. Uh, its CEO Alan Shaw says that we're committed to setting the gold standard for rail safety, and they're proud to be the first to deliver on that promise. So C3RS allows people to gather information on unsafe practices, identify and implement corrective actions, and then share trends and statistics to help enhance rail safety. And February third was the one year, or will be the one year anniversary of the East Palestine train derailment and uh, spill of chemicals that has caused continuing problems in that community. Norfolk Southern has forked over $100 million on the East Palestine recovery effort and will continue, I believe, to give money.
0: If you want to talk about safety, though, you have a bipartisan bill with both J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown strongly behind it that came out shortly after the crash that would change all the rules. And the railroads have fought it, and it's at a standstill. It's not going anywhere. If a railroad was really committed to safety, they wouldn't stand in the way of that bill. Everybody knows that bill should get through, but it's getting blocked by special interests and it's, it's inexcusable. I imagine J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown might get very vocal on February 3rd about the need to move that again because it has gone nowhere.
1: It absolutely has, and it's interesting that nobody signed on to this pilot program except Norfolk Southern. So there, there continues to be resistance in the industry.
0: And derailments every week. This is a common problem in America. They just don't get the publicity as uh, East Palestine because they're not nearly so damaging as that one. But we've got we'll be hearing a lot about East Palestine for the next week. It'll be interesting to see which gets more headlines: Punxsutawney Phil or East Palestine. They're not that far apart. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Two decades ago, people interested in the history of Cleveland's lakefront made a lot of noise about preserving some disassembled Hewlett's, the invented in Cleveland cranes that once unloaded steamers all over the Great Lakes. They wanted to erect them again as some sort of monument. Layla, that dream appears dead. How come?
2: I think it's super expensive, and these things are starting to turn into just a rusted pile of eyesore, basically. Cleveland once had 14 of these gigantic bulk handling Hewlett's. These cranes were patented by Connecticut native George Hewlett in 1898, and they were widely used across the Great Lakes. Most of the 77 Hewletts that once were along the once were in the region had vanished by the 90s. Uh, completely obsolete by by self-unloading freighters. Historic preservation advocates were fighting for a long time to see at least one of these things reassembled, but they were never able to raise the money to pay for it, which was once estimated to cost about 10 million bucks. And much has already been spent on the disassembly of these things and kind of the preservation of, of the remains of four of them with the expectation that one day they might Uh, be reassembled. But now Will Friedman, the president and CEO of the Port of Cleveland, told Steve Litt last week that this ain't going to happen at all. (laughs) He said it's time to move on. The agency is seeking bids to have both of the Hewlett's that remain removed from where their dismantled parts have been stacked on this big pile since 2000. That's at the port's Cleveland Bulk Terminal just west of Wendy Park on Whiskey Island. The port is seeking bids from contractors to do the work to haul all of this away, and they'll likely melt it down for scrap. And that whole process could begin as soon as March. Friedman said that the port will preserve a 60-foot-long bucket arm and and a bucket for possible installation at Wendy Park. And uh, Canal Way Partners would devote about a quarter million toward an installation like that.
0: You'd have to have been here to know just how controversial this was back then. I mean, the people were just beside themselves. They wanted these things erected and they're enormous. I mean, if you put this on the lakefront, it would consume a chunk of the lakefront and it would cost a fortune and they would just rust. They're huge steel contraptions that to maintain would be hugely expensive. And so I think to to just mollify people, they say, okay, okay, we'll disassemble them, spend some money. They're, They're sitting in the grass, there's weeds or things all over them and wait. And I think they've waited to the point where who's going to protest loudly now? What I never understood is why didn't they just take a piece of the steel and make a model of one and put it into scale in some small plaque thing on the lakefront to say once, you know, there were a bunch of these on the lakefront. This is what they look like. They revolutionized steamship industry but to have one of those hulking things all over the lakefront it, it just yeah. seemed like an odd thing to do
2: yeah i agree that's a really nice idea to create a, a to scale model using the materials from the actual hewlett that's a great idea right. i mean you i think it sounds like that. what they're doing is with this bucket arm is is uh you know a possible way to to uh Satisfy people who really wanted the whole thing, but I like your idea better.
0: Yeah, because the bucket arm doesn't give you the scope. I mean, th- these things yeah. were huge, and they had this very specific, iconic look mm-hmm. that would be cool if you were walking along the river for, or the lakefront and you came upon the scale model to see what it was. Or you know, you could even make the scale model with all fourteen of them or something. But. Um, But I get it. And I think the port has just waited. Like, is it time? Can we get away with it now? Are we going to have lots of protests? I haven't heard much in the way of protests. So probably the time is right to finally clear those away. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland based Medical Mutual is expanding its statewide footprint. Laura, how so?
3: Well, they've reached an agreement to buy Paramount Healthcare. That's Toledo-based. It's a health insurance company operating primarily in Ohio and Michigan, which makes sense from a Toledo-based. The deal still needs regulatory approval, but could be official May 1st. So Paramount is going to operate as a a subsidiary of this. And so it won't Change what it's offering its customers. It offers Medicare Advantage and then individual plans under the Affordable Care Act, commercial group, and short term life insurance plans. They are owned, well, they, yeah, right now they're owned by health and wellness nonprofit Promedica. They serve 77,000 healthcare plan members and 300,000 dental plan members. But in comparison, Medical Mutual provides coverage to 1.2 million Ohioans. So it's much bigger.
0: The, the, the Medical mutuals always been in a tough spot because it, it, it's large, but there's much bigger players. And so Medical Mutual is constantly competing with some big players in Ohio. This this should give them a bigger footprint, right? They get to, to, to have a little more substance in the battle.
3: Yes, but it's not going to change their core of their insurance. So they're going to operate them separately for right now. So they say the customer shouldn't notice an immediate difference. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but you're right. Healthcare, I mean, we've talked, we talked about the um, for-profit uh, company taking over SUMA, right? This is, when you pay your bill, you think, where does all this money go? But it's it's not an easy business to be in.
0: Yeah. And in Medical Mutual, its footprint in Cleveland has been big. And so it's important that it stay healthy. It's an interesting Mm -hmm. move to, to fortify. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Columbus has done it. Cincinnati has done it. And now Cleveland could do it. Layla, if all of downtown Cleveland becomes a special taxing district, will city neighborhoods get any benefit? That is really the million-dollar question here. Mayor Justin
2: Bibb and his team came to talk to our editorial board last week about this really ambitious TIF district proposal, and there are still some unanswered questions about how much this plan will benefit the rest of the city outside of downtown Cleveland. This proposed 30-year tax increment financing plan would convert the property tax increases on downtown properties that would otherwise go to libraries and metro parks and other agencies like that, and it would take that money and put it into uh, infrastructure, um, and the city could use that for um, downtown's public amenities and and also augment this private multi-million dollar plan to redevelop the riverfront and uh, Lake Erie shoreline. And if this proposal passes soon, the city could start issuing debt against The potential TIF money based upon how much downtown properties tax values are expected to climb over time in the the first half of this year, they could start doing that. Much of the proceeds from the TIF would go downtown, but Bibb is pledged to eventually use a share of it in other neighborhoods all over the city, particularly in the city's parks and recreation centers, which desperately need investment City Hall later this year is going to release a master plan for parks and rec that should lay out some of the, those items on the wish list. But how much of the TIF money will end up in the neighborhoods? Bibb and his team say they just can't commit to a figure. They say, first, we have to see the TIF working to catalyze the investments they're hoping to see downtown because if it doesn't achieve that, there won't be any further proceeds to, invel- to invest elsewhere. But that answer just might not go over well with city council because they want to know how their neighborhoods are going to benefit from this. And they want some concrete figures and promises.
0: Yeah, this is a worrisome part of the discussion because city council has always been me, my, mine in any kind of funding scheme. But this plan, which our editorial board has given a full-throated endorsement to because it's bold and it could be transformative for Cleveland, Requires an investment downtown. So if if they go out and borrow money against the future future tax revenue in the beginning, you got to put that money downtown, or there won't be future tax revenue. Right. So mm-hmm. I, so I don't think that the administration has communicated this as clearly as it needs to. Yeah, there will be a benefit to the neighborhoods. In five to 10 years. But for the first years, you've got to put that money downtown to get the tax value up to start reaping the benefits. So I get what they're saying. They can't say now what they're going to put into the neighborhoods. I get the feeling council wants a piece of that early money in -hmm. the neighborhoods. You can't do that. So what Bib should do is give them a timeline. Look, for the first five years, zero. Zero goes to the neighborhood. In year six, a half percent goes to the neighborhoods. In year seven, one percent. Some kind of plan that puts it into concrete terms but preserves the principle here that this is about downtown investment.
2: I, I completely agree. I think that council, I, I don't see council passing this without at least some figure associated with a neighborhood, a pledge to the neighborhoods. I, I think that the this um parks and Rec uh, master plan is going to be very well timed when they release that because perhaps that will appear to be you know a promise to to make good on some of those pro- on, on those projects and uh, and you know in conjunction with this proposal, I think that maybe that will that will help uh, smooth it over with council, but they've already ca- they've told Courtney Astolfi that they they want to see numbers.
0: Yeah, I, but I think they have an unreasonable expectation of immediate neighborhood investment. And the, the, the message has got to get across. That doesn't work that way. I mean, if you mm-hmm. look at Detroit, which is way ahead of Cleveland in this, this is just starting to get to the neighborhoods. And they're probably 10 years in. Bib has got to do a better job of messaging to the council that, yes, it's coming He ought to give him a timeline. He ought to to say what year you might expect to see some money. But it's got to be in the future. Lisa, it sounds like you're trying to say something.
1: No, I'm just, you know, I just think that, you know, these bold development plans that we've seen over the decades die at Houston, at Cleveland City Council. They just do because they want their piece of the pie, like you said, right away. And they just don't see, they're not seeing the long game here. And that's distressing. Yeah.
0: And they've yeah, got to gonna, see it. Yeah. It's
1: going to boil down to how well Justin Bibb and
2: his team can sell the big vision here for the city and, and express to them that, you know, the rising tide will raise all the ships.
0: Yeah. And we'll do a story that kind of lays out the timeline just so everybody understands what we're talking about here. TIFFs are complicated. I get it. It's hard to understand. It's our job to make sure people can. And so far we have. We got more to do. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A couple of Republican legislators want to boost penalties for Ohioans repeatedly found in possession of firearms illegally. Lisa, what are the details of this proposal?
1: Yeah, this uh, will soon be introduced into the Ohio House by co-sponsors Bernard Willis of Springfield and Josh Williams of Toledo. They want to increase penalties for felons in possession of firearms, um, and they would make a distinction between violent and non-violent offenders. So currently, it's a third-degree felony conviction for each incidence where they're caught with a gun. Um, that's three years in prison and a $10,000 fine. But they're proposing for non-violent felonies The first-time offense would be lowered to a fourth-degree felony, which is 18 months and a $5,000 fine. The violent felony convictions would stay the same. A second offense would require a judge to give a maximum sentence for a second-degree felony, which is eight to 12 years in prison, and would add five years under a new firearm offender rule. So Governor Mike DeWine and others have tried similar legislation, but it went nowhere with uh, gun lobbyists and the GOP. But Williams, who told Gongwer News Service, he says he's kept DeWine in the loop, he said, but lobbyists insist that the governor be kept away from working on this bill.
0: Well, there's two things about this that are interesting. We we talked last week about a unique program with Attorney General Dave Yost and the U.S. Attorney's Office to prosecute more of these gun crimes in federal court because you get longer sentences. And so this might equalize the sentence, so you wouldn't need to push it to federal court. The idea is... Once somebody uses a gun, they're dangerous. Often they're young. Their brains are still developing. You want to remove them from society until they're no longer a threat. And Ohio's current laws doesn't remove them long enough, whereas federal laws do. So that's an interesting thing to make it the same. The more distressing part of this, and it's why I think gun lobbies and gun makers will be into it, is they want to automatically seal the records of people who commit crimes so that they're no longer deprived of their right to get a gun. Right now, if you're a felon, you can't get a gun. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and think about it. If you're a felon who, who had a gun, didn't use it in a violent way, you're going to have a greater proclivity to want to own a gun. So the gun makers want you to be a customer. They can't get you now. If we pass this law, they, they seal your record. You can buy as many guns as you want. This is a, this is a gift, again, to the gun mm-hmm. lobby so they can sell more guns.
1: Yeah, it's yes. <laughs> but that,
0: that part's not getting discussed because they're getting all their their publicity on their law and order mm-hmm. slamming of people who use guns. But this is much more about let's open up a big market of people we know like guns so they can buy as many as they want. And it'll be interesting to see if that gets discussed at all. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're done for a Tuesday. Laura, you don't have to prepare for his heart tomorrow because we're saving one of your stories for the Wednesday podcast. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens. Come on back Wednesday for another discussion of the news.